Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, is storytelling more difficult in a world of accelerating change? Okay, so if you've been listening to the podcast, uh, we started, our very first episode was about technological acceleration, and we posited the idea that technological progress is accelerating because of technology contributing to its own inputs. And whether or not you, you know, accept the strong version of that argument, it's clear that uh, we have a lot of new visible technologies coming out uh, very frequently. And of course, one group of people that has to deal with this are storytellers. Uh, This is filmmakers and novel writers and anybody who wants to try to tell a story about the present, they're potentially aiming for what is a moving target. Right. And one of the first people to notice this um, and talk about it was uh, William Gibson, of course, uh, being a science fiction writer who's right on the vanguard of speculative fiction. He had to deal with these issues uh, maybe before other people. And his, his solution was sort of interesting. Well, he actually ended up writing a series of novels in the recent past. Uh, one which I read was Pattern Recognition, mm-hmm. which I believe is set in 2002. Yeah. Yet it came out in 2003, I think. Or, right. Yeah. Right. So... Uh, that and was it his very solution. prominently features like email and IMAX and other sort of 2002 era technologically available things to tell its story. And for uh, William Gibson, apparently this was a solution to him just having a hard time wrapping his head around the present. Um, I'm going to quote from him for a second. He says, I was starting to be haunted by a feeling that the world itself was so weird and so rich in cognitive dissonance for me that I had lost the capacity to measure just how weird it was. Without a sense of how weird the present is, How potentially weird the present is, it became impossible for me to judge how much weirder I should try to make an imagined future. So here's somebody who's pretty well equipped to think about things, and he's becoming overwhelmed by the state of the present um, and how much change that we've seen. So Right, and this happened to him 10 years ago, too. It's worth pointing out. (laughs) Right. So, you know, William Gibson is a good starting point, but this has been a problem for people, you know, whether or not they realize it's a problem. Obviously, William Gibson articulated it, but I think at this point, I think we've all seen movies that maybe just kind of missed the wave on something, right? When cell phones came out sure. uh, and we were all using them in their regular lives, I feel like there were a few years there where we were still seeing movies that... Movie after movie where, for some reason, no one had a cell phone. Right. And right. I, and I think the same thing happened with smartphones, where like movie after movie, you'd see flip phones. You're still seeing them. I still... I mean, it's been years now, and I still see movies every once in a while where people are using flip phones as if they're period pieces about five years ago. Right. And of course, there's, there's a good reason that for that, which is that, you know, this stuff can take a while to make. If you're talking about a feature film that's made in like the, the traditional Hollywood system, those things take about three to four years to make, uh, sometimes longer, but that's pretty normal. And that's a long time in today's technological reality. So uh, you could plan something to be completely contemporary, uh, shoot it, and by the time you get it out in front of the public, those things have shifted. Right. And I think it's also, you know, a psychological uh, component to this as well. I think for writers who were writing about their own experiences, um, maybe their experiences with a new technology haven't really sunk in yet to the point that they can write about them. Right, right. Yeah. Well, a lot of artists feel like they need to take some time with any kind of new thing, even if it's not a technological change before they uh, have anything meaningful to say about it. Um, I have a friend who's an artist who moved across the country and uh, so she used to live in L.A. She lives in, in Massachusetts now. And she used to say, well, it's going to be a few years of living here before I can do anything that has anything to do with here. Everything I'm doing is still 
comes from my time in Los Angeles for now. So I think that phenomenon is now happening to everyone all the time because everyone's world is changing so rapidly because of these these technological uh, changes. And, you know, some of these new technologies actually, you know, they change the rules of the plot. I mean, they affect directly the kinds of drama that you can show. And I mean, cell phones are really the easiest example of that. I mean, now that we have cell phones, there's so many plots that don't make sense. Right, right. I mean, there's such a game you could play of watching old movies and pointing out all of the places where a cell phone would have solved all the problems. Like, there's just so, there's so much of plotting that's just about somebody trying to communicate something to someone else and not being able to because they're not at home. Right, and writers have lost that tool. So it, it, now they have to sometimes do these really bizarre contortions to show why, oh, the cell phone battery's dead, or, oh, this is a dead zone. Or, right. if, or sometimes even it, when it's in the, wildly in the future, I mean, there's that whole Star Trek joke of, oh, the communication systems are down, you know, right when they need them, of course. Right, right. Um, in order to create that sense of drama that you would have gotten naturally in an earlier time. Right. But as time goes on and we get fewer and fewer outages with these things, that trope itself becomes less and less believable. And I mean, for a while with cell phones, you could actually buy, okay, there's no bars or the, the battery's dead because that stuff was an experience you would have with your own cell phone all the time. But that experience for me anyways is going away like I I have that experience less and less these days and I feel like pretty soon it might not be realistic anymore yeah so like a a recent series that uh, a lot of people are going to be familiar with is is Breaking Bad Mm -hmm. and this is of course a a crime series you know we're not yet in a world where we have you know such massive surveillance everywhere that you know this type of crime is impossible or anything but it's definitely a lot harder today and in one of the uh, seasons of that show they had a train robbery, and I think they really wanted to have a train robbery because it was a big set piece, and that shows kind of a got a Western feel to it, and it mm-hmm. just sort of made sense. But of course, to justify the fact that they were able to rob a train, right? They had to have a, a explanation that the train was passing through this part of the desert that was a cell phone dead zone. Specifically, right, right, they right. had to throw that explanation in there. Yeah, otherwise the whole thing falls apart. Right. You know, again, a lot of these things from the past are really exciting. It's you know frustrating, I think, to contemporary authors that they can't easily use that stuff sometimes. Right, right. This is not a new thing. I mean, I think another major landmark if we're going back in time would be obviously guns, right? Sure. So, I mean, I think this is part of the attraction to people towards like fantasy. Well, like the gun jamming, I feel like is a similarly unrealistic <laughs> technological trope that used to get thrown into particularly like movies, American sure. movies. Uh, guns jamming at the key moment when the hero is about to be shot point blank, which like guns jam, it's not unrealistic exactly, but it seems to happen only at the most opportune moments. To create a reason for like a old fashioned fist fight or to create a reason for some other right. solution to the problem. Yeah, right. Something that's m- more physical and human to, to watch happen. Exactly. Or you just have the well-known phenomenon of every bullet misses the hero. Like, right, whereas, but every bullet the hero shoots lands perfectly because, right. I mean, every bullet missing the hero is actually probably pretty realistic because people are terrible shots, but uh, why is the hero then an amazing sharpshooter? Right. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, sometimes... <laughs> One or the other. Sometimes they'll give an explanation for that, like he's ex-military yeah, yeah. Well, or something. If he's, yeah, well, if he's bionic or something, I'll buy it. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Um, oh, yeah, so another thing that, that happens when you have all this change, um, and this is something I'm sure you've seen, is that the interfaces to various technologies, particularly software interfaces, they go out of date really fast. And they date your movie um, or, or novel. Like if you have your characters interacting, um, this happens even in William Gibson novels. He has his characters interacting through you know, old-fashioned desktop terminals with the data matrix in some of his earlier cyberpunk novels. And nowadays, 
the predictions of how that world works with all the free flow of data are actually relatively contemporarily uh, understandable. They're they're pretty good, but uh, you do get bogged down in in all of the interface talk. Um, another uh, example is like Minority Report, which when that came out, it was considered really forward thinking. They had all the manipulation of uh, windows with your hands. But to me, that interface already looks completely out of date because interfaces are no longer window-based. That's a desktop metaphor. And now everything takes up the whole screen and in many cases actually gets completely out of your way. Like I think the, the more futuristic interface is the interface like you see in, in her, uh, which is almost not there at all. It's like the minimal notifications and it, it only comes up and actually takes over the screen when it absolutely has to otherwise it's more like a projection on the on the world well and one of the things that we can i think more realize about technology now uh that it was maybe harder to realize that even in the recent past is that technology seems to make itself invisible we don't necessarily like to look at cables and wires and right. clunky boxes that are sitting on desks i mean we'll go to great lengths to you know erase the technology from sight as much as possible and so it seems like and again you know this could turn out to be wrong too because i'm sitting here in 2014 guessing, but it seems like that is maybe a more reliable trend. Right, that seems like the longer term trend rather than uh, the world getting more and more like Brazil. It seems like the capabilities of the world get more like Brazil, but the actual way it looks does not. Right, and I think this is a good transition to starting to talk about what are the solutions that you can take to this. There's a variety of ways that you can address this problem, right? Um, sure. We were just talking about interfaces, and so obviously there are ways to hide the interfaces, even, you know, just don't show them, for example. Right, right. One show that has a great technique for this I really liked is that new British Sherlock show where uh, they just use subtitles for text messages. Whenever a character gets a text message, you see them looking at their phone but you don't see the screen of the phone. The screen just subtitles whatever they're looking at uh, for you, which I think is really nice because it keeps it in the aesthetic of the film. And uh, so you never have to look at that um, that interface that might look okay today, but five years from now it's going to look super cheesy. Yeah, I mean, I definitely get jarred every time I do see an interface that's like a really old operating system with the weird font and stuff. And it can just it can take you out of a movie. I mean, again, unless the movie's really trying to evoke a particular moment... Um, well, until pretty recently, movies didn't even bother using like realistic s screenshots of OSs even, right? I feel like... Um, You're right. They would make their own OS in for the every 90s, shot. In the 90s, you'd get, yeah. yeah, you'd get these like weird windowing systems and stuff, I guess because they just were trying to avoid copyrights or, or, or do their own artwork. Downloading email and it's a big blue right. bar. So I think just to list them, the sure. three the three like big picture solutions that you could do to avoid trying to hit the like, you know, this difficulty of hitting the present um, and getting it at, right, right. Um, is, uh, again, the period piece, which doesn't have to be like a period piece in the traditional sense of let's go back to ancient Rome or let's go back to World War II. It could be like, we're going to set this in 1988, uh, not because anything that we want to talk about happened in 1988 necessarily, but because like, you know, maybe that's when the director of the film grew up and has a strong Right, well, and that's of. a newer phenomenon where I feel like it's these time periods that are not necessarily um, iconic or um, uh, well well documented already are going to get explored for more personal pieces. Like you say, because the childhood of the director was that time or because it's uh, a time that a, a market demographic that you're trying to is reach for. is nostalgic for. Exactly. Yeah. I think there's a lot of stuff right now that's set in the 60s mm -hmm. because of the nostalgia of boomers. 
and uh, their desire to uh, to feel that and JFK's assassination was the uh, nostalgia too, like most the, important thing that ever happened. Oh, Gen X nostalgia? Like, well, the, I don't know, that Hot Tub Time Machine movie is kind of like an 80s nostalgia piece, I feel like. Yeah, that's an 80s nostalgia piece. I mean, I feel like the entire Judd Apatow canon is essentially a giant 80s nostalgia piece. It's sure. just like, you know, I mean, even the ones that are set in the present day just feel so much like John Hughes movies. Oh, um, uh, yeah. The second solution is, of course, to actually... You know, embrace the change and go towards the future and try to write science fiction that deals directly with the technology, but in an exaggerated fashion. So this is kind of the the, the idea here is you're going to overshoot the mark in order to hit it. So if I start working on something today that's about four years in the future and everything goes perfectly and the movie gets made on schedule, then four years from now when it comes out, um, it should be about the present day. But since you may not know what's going to happen in four years, it may be better to do a sort of exaggerated version of it that goes even further than that, right? Like right. You, well, especially since you're probably biased to think that less change will happen in four years than is actually going to happen, you almost certainly want to try to overshoot what you think is right. Um, and then you may still find yourself undershooting, as I, as I think we've seen. Right. Or if you just set it so like far enough in the future and the technology is speculative enough, then you should at least get uh, a fair number of years. Well, I mean, I think that, yeah. at that point, that becomes the third solution, which is, becomes a kind of fantasy. Where if you go far enough into the future, you're no longer trying to be relevant to today. Right. Well, and there's different ways of doing of being outside of time. Yes, which is the third solution. Yeah. So you can be outside of time by doing a pure fantasy, which of course that's already a genre, and I don't just mean things with elves and orcs, but you know, there's a lot of science fiction that's essentially pure fantasy. It just has robots as its elves. But there's also a kind of storytelling that's been happening uh, recently that I think is interesting. That's more outside of time in a less obvious way. And that they sort of aesthetically pick and choose the technology they'll show. Right. So like the best example, and I think the sort of originator of this in American film is uh, Wes Anderson. Right. So in Wes Anderson movies, uh, there will be some technologies, and those technologies seem to generally come from like the 70s and 80s, but they're not from a specific year or a specific manufacturer. They're not specifically chronologically correct, but they have a certain aesthetic to them that links them, and they create the feeling of that world of the past without specifically situating you in a, in a particular time. Right, and you get, you get the sense that he'll show a computer if it has the right look. But, yeah. you know, he's not, you know, he's picking his technology based on how it looks. And right. Well, and obviously how it works in the story, too, because he doesn't give his characters cell phones in, right. in most of the For stories. For dramatic reasons, probably. But he does give them typewriters and answering machines and other kinds of technologies from the past. Right. And I, I don't know exactly, you know, what his thought process is, but I think, you know, this could possibly be a response to just a sense of, like, new technology, I think, because it's such a you know, a product, really. Like, mm-hmm. it can feel a bit tacky, right? You have these, like, Apple logos right. and, like, Samsung logos and stuff emblazoned on stuff that you've, like, literally just saw a commercial for, like, before you walked into the movie. and Right. You don't want your film to feel like a commercial. At this point, there's still a really negative stigma attached to product placement, for example. Right. Um, you know, that might change in the future, and maybe people will just stop caring. I think they will, but... I, I personally think I see so many corporate logos in my normal, everyday life that if I see them in a movie at this point, I'm just going to ignore them. But, right. Um, I, I definitely buy that that hasn't been the case in the recent past. It's, I think it's an interesting choice to, um, to just basically create an aesthetic world that looks how you want it to look and not to worry about exactly what time period it is, because I think people will, uh, will buy that if you stick to it. 
Sure. And then another example I can think of of picking the technology you want based on appearances would be steampunk. Sure. Which is interesting to think about steampunk being a product of the 1980s, which is when, um, you know, computers really started to make this uh, this phenomenon, I think, a, a serious issue. I think it wasn't until cell phones that storytelling started to have really aggressive challenges from the technological realm, uh, because that, like we talked about, that just that screws up the lack of communication in so many different stories. Like you could play a hilarious game, I think, just watching old movies and trying to point out all the different ways that a cell phone would ruin them. Or in some cases, uh, like Google, like just look it up. Or just, right. right. Like, I mean, there's tons or GPS of... GPS positioning is something we haven't tons talked of about. That. Yeah. And all of those things. So those things are all 90s or later uh, innovations. But in the 80s, when online hookup of computers started to be possible and, and certain kinds of data started to come through, people started to have this, this problem. And steampunk, I think, comes out of that time period because it is an ability to talk about technology and technology's effects without actually having to understand all of this new technology. Uh, you can just analogize it to the Industrial Revolution and make your story there. Although my favorite steampunk story is actually a, a William Gibson collaboration with Bruce Sterling called The Difference right. Engine. And in that one, they actually tried to do genuinely speculative steampunk, which is a kind of interesting idea. They actually imagine what if Victorian England had gotten a powerful computer. And that's pretty much what the story's about. So, of course, they run the world um, instead of America. And the computer has given them all these advantages in the world. And then there's a plot of intrigue surrounding the computer, which is a, a kind of an interesting way of both dealing with the present and shirking all these issues of modern technology being difficult for storytelling. So when you, when you put all this together, uh, I think we might make a hypothesis that we would see an increase in these various ways of sort of avoiding the present moment right. um, and all of its technology. And right. I want to back that up just a little and explain why, like the reasoning there, which is if you, if you buy that uh, technological change is continuing to accelerate and that we're going to have more and more of these disruptive changes, right. then it, it stands to reason that um, as time goes on, it's going to get harder and harder to hit that contemporary moving target, especially if... Uh, production times don't go down. And I think I don't see how it'd be possible to make novel production times go down without having the quality suffer. Although that's one solution is um, to have a really fast production timeline. Fast turnaround, I think, for filmed media is definitely something that is happening. And you see, I think, the rise of documentary style programming as a direct attempt to make production go faster. Basically, yeah. If you reality skip the writing TV process show doesn't have this much, and have the editor do your writing much, for yeah. you. You can you can cut your uh, your production time uh, considerably, uh, but but I think we should expect uh, the hypothesis that I'm comfortable making is that we should expect that uh, we're going to see more novels and films, especially those that are successful, uh, dealing with either the past or the future or this ambiguous um, sort of fantastical time period, uh, rather than being set in a contemporary realist world which is something that traditionally lots of production has been set in. Yeah, that's a trend that we're sort of proposing, and we haven't collected the data to see if that started yet. But Subjectively, it feels like I'm seeing more of these yeah. things, uh, and I don't know if that's really true. Um, one thing that we did look at is we looked at our, the current Oscar nominations. There, sure. are, there are nine of them and uh, this year, and out of the nine, uh, seven of those are set in the past or the future or they're ambiguous about it. Uh, so that's a that's a large number. We we did a quick cursory search of of uh, Oscar nominees in the past, and it was a little hard to say whether it's more or less than in the past. I think something that's uh, confounding that data is just how well biopics tend to do in the Oscar Best Picture category. Right, period pieces um, have a long tradition of. of but that doesn't mean that they're around. actually getting made a lot. I mean, the conventional wisdom when I uh, started 
uh, writing in the film industry was that don't do period pieces because they're more expensive to produce and that immediately makes them less likely to get made. But I don't think that conventional wisdom holds up anymore. I think at this point, it's gotten cheaper to produce period because of better technology, but also contemporary settings don't have the cachet that they once had because of how hard it is for them to be relevant. So the final point that we want to make, I think, is kind of taking this to the logical extreme. So if you accept the idea that technology is accelerating, then ultimately you sort of have to ask the question of where is it going And uh, we did an episode on what's called intelligence explosion. And there's also this idea of a singularity, which we haven't talked a ton about. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm not going to go into super detail on this. But essentially, as we keep improving our computers. All that's on the internet. So you can use Google to learn about that. Right. This is easy enough to look up on. uh, But I'll give the basics, which is that as the computers improve, right, and they become uh, better at thinking, um, they eventually reach this point where they're kind of at at least the level of a human. And of course, this is something you've seen in science fiction constantly. And in the science fiction of the past, uh, we look at it now and it doesn't necessarily make as much sense as it used to because we used to have these science fiction stories with these um, android robots walking around sure. that were sort of fixed at this level of intelligence that was like either it's at human, human level or, or, slightly below, or, right. or you're just below, like chimp right. level or something. Yeah. That thought experiment today, when we think about, you know, Moore's Law and we think about the rapid improvement in hardware doesn't make any sense because now it seems clear that when we do get that level of artificial intelligence, it's not going to sit there at at a human level for a while. It's going to rapidly... The assumption seems to have been that humanity had the maximum amount of intelligence that a thing could have. Sure. And that we were sort of asymptotically approaching that with our robots... Um, but this concept that's now about 30 years old, that uh, there's probably an upper bound to intelligence that's beyond humanity and that technology might be able to achieve it really does drastically change what kinds of things science fiction authors feel like they need to address. Well, it ruins your predictions of the future. And this is an idea that's, you know, invented by Werner Vinge, which is like he described uh, this as a singularity because it was something that you couldn't see beyond. Right. And, you know, right. our, at our level of intelligence, how can we imagine what something smarter than us would do. I mean, we effectively can't almost by definition. Right, right. Um, so so Werner Vinge created this idea of the singularity that's sort of on the horizon looming there, this point at which we can't predict. I mean, you can try. I mean, obviously, as a fiction writer, you can do whatever you right. want. Right, and Vinge himself tries. But it's a rather difficult challenge to write about things that are smarter than you are. Yes. Um, and so... I mean, most science fiction authors, I think, are now pretty well aware of this concept, uh, yeah. if not all the audience members. And so Vernavigie's joke like that this idea, obviously, we, we're way off from the singularity in our own lives, but right. it's it sort of affected science fiction authors first. Right, right. This these, idea that science fiction authors have sort of already had experienced to deal with this. the singularity because they their job is to predict the future and they've already reached the singularity in the future. They've right. already, in the future that they're predicting, they've already run up against this wall. So if you want to write about the year 2100 and you want there to be robots, you now, you know, for a lot of your audience have to address this issue of why there isn't an insane intelligence explosion. Right. Which maybe you can address through hand waving and say, oh, well, there is some upper bound on intelligence before the mind goes insane, let's say. Um, but I think that's going to be, that's going to start to look like a real hand wave these days now that uh, there are been so many efforts to predict what might really happen on the other side of a world with you know super intelligent machines. So that's a sort of a wall in the future that's also maybe forcing authors to either you know look backwards instead or look outside of time completely. Right, right, yeah. And so as as the trend goes forward, we might actually see even less 
things that are set in the future because even that target basically gets too hard to to hit and uh and so we'll maybe see more and more emphasis on on period pieces which can organically have classic themes of human desire because they're set in periods when those themes uh made sense and uh and also these sort of temporally ambiguous um pieces that that allow you to um pick and choose what you want from the past and the present so that kind of summarizes uh, some of the impacts that we think that uh, a world of accelerating change is happening on storytellers, at least. In a upcoming episode, we're going to be reviewing the new book, The Second Machine Age. Right, the new book by uh, Andrew McAfee and uh, Eric Benyolson. We're, we're working through that right now, so we'll have that to share with you soon. Uh, and uh, please leave us a comment and let us know, um, you know what you think about, uh, about storytelling and technology. And uh, rate us on iTunes, which is a simple thing you can do. If yeah, you've if been you listening. have five seconds, please... Uh, If you've been listening, do give us a rating. That would mean a lot to us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.